0: Episode 30, Matt Graham, here we go. The manager of Country Superstar Act Midland, the co-founder of Range Media, college friends with Scooter Braun. That doesn't even really scratch the surface. Matt is kind of a young legend. Not kind of, he's he's like a young legend. And as much as he has accomplished in his career, I mean, he is just getting started. I mean, the stuff he is doing right now with Range Media and the acts he's working with. Cutting edge, and like I said, just getting warmed up. This was a great conversation. I, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. We talked about it all. Here we go, episode 30, Matt Graham. Let's dive in. So, well hold I'm actually, I'm just curious because I know you're a big music fan, obviously. And I'm just really curious. Were you a Van Halen fan at all? Mm, just like anybody else, you know what I mean? Like, love the hits great like when you're drunk in a bar you know what they weren't but like not okay fair enough that's kind of how i felt i remember yeah. hearing eruption in a car for the first time and freaking out like that song blew my mind but i don't know sure. if i was like the biggest van halen fan
1: yeah it's like I-, I think they're incredible stage performers too which you know to me is always like i, I look for that you know what i mean because i i feel like that's what separate separates kind of like men from the boys you know what i mean like can you really bring it in a three-dimensional way beyond the record and they 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 always brought it a thousand on stage you know
0: i was just watching this video with them with um with um sammy hagar and they were playing a part and they all got on stage together the three bass player eddie Eddie and sammy and they all started going like this like down the stage and the crowd goes crazy And I was like, yes. it's such a simple effect, but it was such, it, it was like, bands don't do that anymore. They don't line up and walk down a stage. Even like but, when the midland guys, when Cam
1: on bass and Jess on guitar, and then um, Luke, our lead guitarist, when all three of them line up and they all do the guitar move at the same time,
0: it's just like, people fucking love it, dude. It's like, it's so kitschy, but it's great, you know? That is, I mean, like, I think ZZ Top was the first band I ever saw really do that move and my first concert was Easy Top, and I remember them doing that move, and your heart races. I don't know what it is. It's not that complicated. No, but it's just like organized
1: choreography is always kind of interesting, you know what I mean? And like, it's, people love choreography. I mean, that's why BTS is like the biggest act in the world right now. Like, there's nothing talented about them, but like, just nobody does that. It's like, when you give young girls a bunch of like, pretty dudes, with pop music and organized choreography, people just like lose their mind.
0: That's what, there's a great Seth Godin quote that I love, which is, the difference between good pizza and bad pizza is, is that good pizza is inconvenient to make. It's the same ingredients, but good pizza takes a lot more effort as inconvenient. I feel like that's why people like choreography, because you know that it was inconvenient to put in. You had it to. Is.
1: That's <laughs> interesting, yes, it's probably true. It's just, it's not winging it, you know what I mean? Like, you can tell. You can tell that there was a lot of effort and thought, and it's, it's entertainment, you know? Just right.
0: Absolutely. So, I'm really curious. When Cody Simpson plays the White House,
1: uh-huh.
0: who, who, gives, who gives you that call? Or how do, you, how do you book that? How does that happen? Who books the White House?
1: Sure. So, it was something we really, really wanted to do, and we were aware that um, Sasha and Malia were fans. Um, and so we asked our publicist at the label to reach out, um, and see if it was possible that we could do the Easter egg, uh, event. That's like a pretty popular sort of kid friendly thing the White House does every year. And, um, you know, it was like a dream of mine to meet Obama, um, obviously. And for Cody, he was just like, yeah, that's cool. Like he's Australian, you know what I mean? Like meeting the American president was like kind of amazing, but it wasn't like, it wasn't what it means for you and I to go to the White House, although it means something very different these days. Right. Uh, and um, it really came down to the our publicist at Atlantic Records reaching out to the White House and pitching for Easter uh, the, the Easter event. And I remember Janelle Monet did it, too. Um, it was really cool going down there with her because she's someone that I'd always just loved as an artist. And I went to see one of her first shows in Atlanta when she was just like showcasing and I think Big Boy at the time had signed her from Outkast. And, you know, so it, it was kind of like, it was just a very special moment for me.
0: Does the White House pay well? Do you get paid for that gig?
1: No, it's like, they just cover all your expenses. They put you up at the hotel. They take care of all the costs for the band. And, you know, it's a revenue neutral situation. And did you get your moment to meet Obama? Yeah, I did. I have like an incredible photo with him and, and my wife in the Oval Office. and pretty
0: cool oh my god that is that is so cool so when that happens does that open up any kind of like other opportunities like did any other opportunities or things come out of playing the white house like did that yeah. did that do anything career-wise obama, or was it just a obama great took moment me aside. obama took me aside and he said if you can do this
1: for a 15 year old kid from australia what do you think you could do with me when i get out of the office and i said just give me a call when you're done." And you will see the size of the book deal you will get. Uh unfortunately he never called. He never called.
0: He never I was incredibly fortunate enough to, to go to a Hanukkah party at the White House during the Obama years. I remember um seeing him give a speech in one of some pla- some room in the White House, but there was a ton of people who gave a speech and they went around and shook everyone's hand. And he said and he shook mine and he said, Thanks so much for coming. I said, Anytime, Mr. President. And your heart races. It's yeah. it's weird because I think like Cause you're around so many celebrities and you kind of grew up being around a lot of celebrities. Is a president, the last person that you maybe get starstruck around? He's
1: definitely like it. I do not get starstruck. Um, right? And it, it definitely impacted me. As you said, like, I almost felt like I couldn't talk, you know, like it was just being in the office. You're so nervous. You know what I mean? Like just being in, in the white house and, and um, yeah, I would say it's one of those those final sort of frontiers in terms of like celebrity um, starstruckness that you'll that you'll experience. I- I've actually always been more like starstruck by great entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I'm I'm more like anxious to meet those types of people and uh, interested in like picking their brain. I guess like uh, celebrity was not like the currency to me that like created, uh, intimidation, which is probably why I've been able to do my job effectively.
0: Absolutely. So who's like an entrepreneur that you would be starstruck to meet or, or, or have been starstruck to meet?
1: Um, I would say like, I'd really love to meet Elon Musk. I'd really love to meet Branson. I haven't met either of them. And I think like that would be very, very special um, and I'd love to just like talk to them for a bit. Um, I think guys like that, that just like are, they're kind of mavericks, fiercely independent, really put their money where their mouth is, um, have been able to do it across multiple verticals. Like you can never call guys like that lucky. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Because <laughs> it's like, it's not like they hit it big in one thing and they just like wrote it to the top. It's just like everything they do, they succeed at. It's pretty incredible.
0: Right, even when the odds are against them, they always pull through. In the case of Elon especially, it's, it's incredible. Um, okay, so when you started in the music industry, when you were in college, you were kind of one of the first, you know, among the first generation of people working with social media. I've heard you say how you hacked Facebook because at the time you couldn't make Facebook groups, so you would make like a personal page and invite people to do that. It was, you know, the Wild West, the New Frontier. Yeah. Do you think relatively... Was it easier to go viral back then, because there were less people doing it? Not to discredit how smart you had to be to do it, but was it? Do you think it was easier to break an act on social media back then than than it is today? Mm, it was definitely less
1: saturated, and there were less people that were competent at utilizing the instruments, um, and I felt like that gave us a big competitive advantage. That like. Mostly, we were competing against people that were much older than us who didn't really know how to use the platforms. Um, I do, I do feel that way. I, like, I don't know that I've ever felt like the the way I did when we were kind of in the heat of the Cody Simpson stuff, and it was just like I could get a global trend going on Twitter, like just as a joke. You know what I mean? It, right. like It wasn't even a thing to make that happen. You know, I could oftentimes even do it from my account, like not just Cody's, you know, Um, just using the power of the followers that he had who followed me that would then reverberate throughout the whole fan base, you know? Um, It's such an incredible feeling. And I, and I always see that like with the sort of Billy Eilishes and like the, the next sort of wave of the young stars that really just control the internet. It's pretty amazing to watch. And, um, Sean Mendez and you know like there's just great examples of it now um and we haven't had a client that really like had that potential um since Cody like our clients Wale is probably the best example you know he's he's um he's so socially literate on on uh social media and he does an incredible job of going viral on Twitter and stuff like that but his audience is, is much, old, it's much more um, mature, I guess, you know, it's not like the same sort of teen virality, you know, he's gotta be very smart about the way that he gets things going.
0: Do you think it's harder to capture as much like, you know, the Beatles played at Ed Sullivan, hundred million people tuned in, there were three channels, Justin Bieber breaks on YouTube. There were less people on YouTube today. Everybody's on social media. Do you think it's yeah. harder for artists to capture the full attention of the you know of the of the earth I guess or or America or do you, or now it feels like everything's I a little think, more fragmented?
1: Well, I do, I do. I think although though now it's more of like a middle class of celebrity as well too. Um, but yeah, I often talk about this. Like it was simultaneously much easier and much harder to become a huge star back then. Easier in the sense that if you knew how to get to the gatekeepers and you were discovered, there were like a small group of people that could just make you famous. And you did a few things and then you were just like a household name. Um, Now that's not the case. It's much more democratized, but there's so many places where you can become famous and bubble up. Um, And I don't think the idea of ubiquity uh, really exists anymore, you know? even within our own industry, like even within the music industry, there's so many managers. If you talk to them in hip hop and you mention like what we do over in country music, they won't even be aware of those acts, you know, and vice versa Nashville, not being aware of what's happening in hip hop. Like even, even to experts in a particular vertical, like music, people who make a living off of music, don't even know everyone that's popping in music, you know? Right. So, and, and that used to obviously not be the case. Like the general American public knew everyone that was famous musician. Right. So right. now we're at a point where even within your own industry, it is hard to become ubiquitous. Right. I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it makes our jobs more difficult to create huge stars. And obviously with our move into range, that's definitely a big part of our model. Um, and we have people like Chris Hemsworth and Bradley Cooper, who really are ubiquitous, you know, and are huge global stars. Um, and that is still the measuring stick that we now have to work against. Um, but there's a vast and growing middle class of star, um, both in music and film and TV. And, uh, and then all corners of the internet. You know what I mean? Of course, like now we have TikTok stars and before that we had Vine stars and before that was just YouTube stars. And, um, and some people are podcast stars and some people are like whatever it is. Right. And, and I think that's a good thing. I don't think celebrity is something that should be controlled by gatekeepers. I think it should be democratized and, I think everyone should sort of be able to have their own corner of the universe that they can monetize if they find an audience. And, um, I think what we're trying to think about for the future is how do we capitalize on that? Right? Like how do we monetize the middle class, um, while still thinking about growing the stars of tomorrow that can become ubiquitous. Right. The the way to do that is become partners in, in the IP. So whether that's, you know, uh, co-owning records and publishing with your clients that you finance and build or uh, producing or co-financing film and TV productions um, or building brand verticals with them that you co-finance. Like, It's just the idea of partnership and capturing their audience um, and giving and selling them something that you're a partner in and you have skin in the game and you're not just the guy who brokered the deal, you know? I think the old model of representation where all I have to do is like know a guy who wants my guy and then somehow I get paid off the middle it's like I don't know I I think that's antiquated
0: do you trust because you work in so many genres obviously as you mentioned like I feel like in the genres I grew up listening to those are the genres that I feel really confident about my A&R ability to decide what's good and bad and in genres that I didn't grow up in, like I didn't grow up listening to a ton of hip hop and I can't tell you what's great or good hip hop. Like, I don't know what the difference is between good and great hip hop. Do you find working in other genres, do you trust your a skills or for you, is it important to surround yourself with people that, that know country really well, for example?
1: Uh, so I do trust my A&R skills, um, but I also have a lot of like humility about it. Um, I'm not the guy who's gonna like stand up in the room and be like, I don't care what anybody else thinks. This is a fucking hit, you know? Um, I've, I've kind of always been able to do it in all genres. Like, it's just something that I've been able to do since I was a kid, is like hear a song and be like, this is gonna be a hit. Or even sometimes just see an artist and be like, this artist is gonna be very right. successful. Yeah, it's gonna work, you know? Um, not just people that I've signed, it's just like a skill set that you develop and I think it's just because I have a very sort of like common man view on talent. Like I don't listen from the perspective of like a musical genius, you know, like I I don't, I don't have like great musical skills. I kind of just, I I think I have a sort of very common ear, Um, but I know what works and what people like. um, And I'm able to sort of like, layer that over the song and what I'm hearing, as opposed to the average person who really doesn't know what's driving the industry or what the trends look like or the historical success patterns of things. Like I'm able to sort of layer that over what I'm hearing, which is still kind of a very layman's um, version of A&R, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah, look, I think a lot of great success stories are like that. Like there's, there are some music guys that are real music people, but there's plenty of guys that weren't, you know, and they've been right, of course, at, at identifying talent and hit songs, you know? So I, I would say like, yes, I'm confident in my A&R ability in, in most genres um, also because I do the work. Like when I came into country six years ago, I just transitioned to listening country all the time. Like, whether I wanted to or not, I was just pushing myself to listen to old country from 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s to new country um, and really immersing myself in it and being able to sort of like recalibrate my ear as to what what works and what doesn't, you know. Um, I find, I actually find the stuff like hip hop, which I grew up listening to and love so much, it's almost harder to adapt sometimes because I just don't like some of the newer stuff,
0: you know? Yeah, because it's, it's not what you think hip hop should sound like when you were in high yeah. school or college or, or whatever.
1: Exactly. You know, uh, I, I believe that hip hop is a storytelling genre, and it should be controlled by lyricists. And very often we see that is not the case, particularly in today's landscape. So, you know, it's actually kind of harder sometimes for me in the genre that I feel like I know the best, Um, because I am, I'm prejudging it based on what my expectation of the music should be, as opposed to like country or alt rock or stuff that like, I don't necessarily gravitate towards, um, or didn't necessarily gravitate towards previously. And like the paradigm that I'm looking at is like now, not what it was or what I fell in love with.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. And hope you're enjoying the show. Some of you may know that I run an industry newsletter called the Nashville Briefing really takes you to the front row of everything happening in our industry. And if you want to learn more about it, you can go to NashvilleBriefing.com to subscribe. Also, if you're enjoying this show, and specifically this episode, please feel free to give us a five star review on your podcast listening platform. Thanks so much. Now back to the show. Do you think it's relatively, do you think, because after college you went to New York, you then went to L.A., and then you worked on breaking into Nashville. Do you think it's relatively easier to break into Nashville coming from L.A. or New York versus being based in country music in Nashville and trying to break into L.A. or managing a band in L.A.? Because it it feels sometimes here like you can operate in Nashville without touching L.A. at all, to some extent, to a large extent. Breaking in, you know, is any... Do you think it's easier to go one way or another?
1: Mm. It's probably easier to do it the way that I did coming from LA to Nashville, than from Nashville to LA. Um, but you have to be very careful about how you do it. And I was so thoughtful in my approach and delicate, um, I understood that it was an insular community that Really has great reverence for its musicians and its songwriters, um, and looks down its nose at the disposable nature of pop music. Um, doesn't really understand hip hop at all, and uh, and is skeptical of people from LA and New York who are just coming in and trying to like play angles, you know, and like and act like know it alls, and and like they're somehow above them in some pecking order of the entertainment business. And I really always came like sort of hat in hand um, as modestly as I could and was committed to learning and contributing, you know. And as soon as I could, jumped on ACM boards and just did whatever I could to sort of integrate into the cultural fabric of the town and make real friends and build real friendships and, and go to showcases and like really just listen and contribute, you know without like dictating or um or prejudging or you know what i mean like i i really tried to approach the town as if i was almost coming there to work in the mailroom kind of a thing you know and it really served me well and i had a lot of great um like uh i don't know I guess I would just say like I would I would Sherpas, you know what I mean? Like people like Jason Owen and Todd Ramey and and um and you know my really close friends like Chris Lamb at Big Machine and Brett Saliba from CAA and like people were sort of just like invested in helping me um develop the relationships that I needed to, you know, Jim Weatherson, um Jake Bazden, like they, they really knew that like my heart was sincere about caring about not only this band, but the genre. And, and I started to try to see how I could benefit both towns, you know, and, and, um, make LA pay a little bit more attention to Nashville and make Nashville believe that they should be thinking more about what they can do in LA whether it's in the film and TV space or uh, getting Nashville writers to to be more open to heading to LA to do co-writes and writing camps. And just, I don't know, I, I, I hope that I can do that even more and that I could spend the rest of my career
0: like being a bridge for both communities. Who's the, like when you first decide that you're gonna start working in Nashville, you have Midland, you're now working with Midland, of course. Did you think of like, who were the first people that you were going to reach out to like, did you think I need to connect with managers or label heads or maybe that first trip you came here with the goal of I want to break into this community. Do you remember who some of the first people were that you connected with?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so when I signed Midland Um, we made a music video first um, and I sent that music video to two people at the same time. I sent it to Randy Phillips who was running AEG at the time. And I sent it to Scooter. And I just said, look how fucking cool this band is. Who in Nashville do you know that would like dig this? And they both responded at the exact same time with the same name. They were like Jason Owen. And I was like, who's that kind of thing, you know? And I Googled him and I saw that he was managing Casey Musgraves who I had just watched at the Grammys, I had gone to the Grammys that year and watched Casey Musgraves do her little performance in The Round at Stable Center. And, um, and I loved her. And I was like, oh, I get this. I get why people love country music. Like, this is fucking cool, you know? And I was like, wow, okay, this would be great. And they told me, like, Jason's young, he's super progressive, um, he has great taste. Like, oh, this sounds super exciting. So they connected us. Um, we really liked each other. I flew out there. It went great, and we decided to like start working on the band together. You know, I basically said, if you just set up meetings, like I'll do all the hard work. You know, I'll make sure it happens. I'll make sure they get there. I'll make sure they do the co-writes. I'll make, you know, just basically tell people you believe in this band and open a few doors, and I'll make sure that we kick him down, you know. And he brought on Todd Ramey from his team, who was doing Dan and Shea at the time. Maybe Casey Musgrave, she was even doing. Um, and uh, Todd and I formed, like, a really close bond and alliance. And it took, like, two years to really, like, get through the door with Midland. And we got our first publishing deal with Warner Chapel. Ben Vaughn bet on on them. And then, you know, we, we did – a series of showcases and i really think it was this sort of showcase in la i put together at the roxy where it was like i was like "Fuck, man doing country music at the roxy would be so cool like no one does that and we opened it up as a free event i was able to get a vodka company to pay for the whole thing um cisco adler whose family owns the roxy was really help like uh really helpful and sort sort of putting the whole thing together and we packed the roxy it was for a band that nobody had ever heard of, that had never played like any shows ever in LA, had never released music. We completely packed the Roxy, and so many different a came, and um, a couple of Bruno Mars'
0: like, bandmates and shit came out because of Cameron. Um, Wait, but how did you, I mean, I know you have a history of promoting, you know, you're not afraid to send a million emails and a million text messages, but you just said nobody had heard of this band. Yeah, how did you, was it just people, were you just hustling people to come out and saying, trust it me? Promoter. It was old school club promoting.
1: You know, it was just like, bring your friends, bring your friends, friends, bring your fucking mom. Like I just need bodies in the room type thing. Um, and the band did the same thing and Cisco did the same thing. And, and, um, we just packed that room. I had two young guys working for me, Justin Sterling and Matt Goulet. Justin now does day-to-day for Sean Mendez and, You know, Justin was like a, they're both like sort of scene star hustler, young kids. Like they were in their early twenties. They were able to bring out a lot of interesting people. And um, it really was uh, Bruno's team calling Bruno and being like, yo, do you know Cam is in a band, like a country band? And he was like, shut the fuck up. And, uh, And so Bruno called his manager, Brandon Creed, who was a friend of mine. And Brandon called me and he said, you know Bruno's interested in signing these guys, like um we're gonna call Julie at Atlantic and we're gonna try to set it up and Bruno flew the guys out and they wrote three songs together in the studio and then the guys simultaneously went to Nashville and did their showcase, and we packed that and Allison Jones from Big Machine was there, and she fell in love with the guys and suddenly we had this sort of like little bidding war going on um with no music in the marketplace and um no touring history other than some small shows around Texas that they had been playing for a few years. And it was exactly what we, you know, hoped to do, which was like, just create this buzz around this band off sheer potential. And uh, sure enough, Scott Porchetta put up the best deal and, and um, we cut a record and that's how we got here today
0: rest is history there you go I don't want to say the rest is history because we're still because we're still in
1: it we're still in it (laughs) but um you know that that little album uh you know went gold and had a double platinum hit and uh, another platinum hit and and um that album you know brought us to to present day and and really it's crazy because you know the two biggest songs on that album drinking problem and burnout were co-written in their first co-write in Nashville with Shane McNally and Josh Osborne that Jason set up, you know? And it was just, like, it was so perfect and fortuitous that, you know, it's just, like, one domino falls into the next. Like, okay, who do I talk to in Nashville? Jason Owen. Okay, Jason, who do we meet? Uh, Shane and Josh. Okay, let's write with them. Okay, they write two hits. Like, okay, we get a record deal with Big Machine. It just kind of, once they... It took years, but once you knocked one domino over, it just felt like they just kept
0: on. It flowed. Jason's roster is so visual, like if you look like Dan Shea, Casey Midland, of course, do you think that visual artists attract to him and that's who he likes to work with? Or does he help a lot to create those visuals or a little bit of both? Like, like what's the secret behind branding Midland? It's definitely a
1: little bit of both. He definitely works actively with a lot of the artists on the visuals, I think with Midland, the visuals generally come more from the three guys. Um, so I wouldn't say that he's or I are very instrumental in the visuals. Um, I think that they are really visual artists. Um, obviously, Cameron's a famous music video director. So it's like it's clearly comes from him. But all three of the guys, you can see they're so stylized and they're, you know, they're such flamingos, <laughs> really, um, and which is why we use that that in our insolito branding for our tequila. Um, but they're just so visual and so interesting and so unique. Um, but I think Jason, Jason just has great taste. And that's actually, I don't mean to be insulting, but not all that common in Nashville. Um, and his, his taste is exceptional. He likes acts that, that are visually stimulating and care a lot about that. Um, because he's a great marketer. He's a great publicist. He knows that that's a big part of the story you know
0: totally so you know David Geffen sends the Eagles to Aspen and fixes their teeth and cleans them up that was not part of the Midland process that did not they were already the sexiest band in country music out of the gate
1: (laughs) for sure I mean that was like why I signed them they were too old for me to sign you know I mean it made no sense for me to sign three guys in their 30s you know that had not succeeded in music I just you're floored when you meet them the first time you're just like you always look like this, you know what I mean? Like you could be boarding a flight with them at 6 a.m. and they look like that, you know? It's just crazy, like
0: it's not a costume, it's like, it's who they are, you know? I met them at a CMA radio remote and they came over and Mark was spraying um, like throat coat into his mouth or something. And I I think I said like, what is that? And he said, "Um, it's throat coat, you want some? And I said, sure, and he sprayed it onto my face, completely missed my mouth. And I was like, for some reason, I didn't think that was a dick move. I thought it was hilarious and badass. I was like, who does that? That is so good. And on video, there's a video of it somewhere. It's I, it's so funny. Oh, my God. it's <laughs> funny. I'm very smart. Yeah. <laughs> so, good. okay. So, let's go back for a minute. So, you're in college. It's day one. You're sitting at a bar. You're, you're with a bunch of beautiful women. Screw Bron comes up to you. He says, I think you've figured college out. And yeah. then he basically says, you want to come work for me? Like, what? How does that, how does that go down? Yeah, it's so bizarre, because that's exactly how it went down. Um, and I was like,
1: sure, what does that mean kind of a thing? And in the back of my head, I'm like, this guy sells drugs. You know what I mean? Like, what, the, what else What else? he do? Yeah. Um, we go outside, and he's got a purple Mercedes uh, CLK with chrome rims. Sorry, Scooter, if you ever see this and you think I'm blowing up your spot, but this was a very famous car, so he, he knew that this was gonna happen. And um, I said, oh, he definitely sells drugs, you know? Uh, and he pops his trunk and I was like, oh, for sure, these are drugs. Like, <laughs> every layer of this was just like, it was clear that this was gonna be a drug transaction. Um, and uh, he takes out like a box of flyers to promote Club 112, which at the time was like, so famous because every Atlanta rapper was talking about Club 112 and I was so excited to go like um just having heard that reference so many times in hip hop records and he said you know come out on Thursday night bring some people you know I'll take care of you I'll buy a drink or something like that and I did and that kind of kicked off my club promoting relationship with him and and which developed into a close friendship and um, living together and, you know, really going down the rabbit hole of the music business with them.
0: Did, did you think he had big energy or did you think he was like huge, huge, huge I, energy I, even I, back then? Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I'll never forget. I remember there was like one of the first Halloween parties we did, whether it was my freshman year or sophomore year, there's funny photos of us. He had a mohawk uh, and I had super long hair at the time. And I was dressed like a samurai and I don't know what he was dressed like, but. Um, I took him aside. I probably had too many drinks and I was just like, I just want you to know, like, it's cool that we're managing these rappers and stuff, but like, I don't really believe in any of them. I just believe in you and like, whatever you need me to do, I'll do it because like, I really believe in your vision and your energy and your focus. Um, and he was like, thanks man. You know what I mean? Like I could tell that it resonated with him that like. It wasn't like I don't care that you have a cool car or that like you know Jermaine Dupree, like I'm not really that's not what it's about. For me, it's like about you. You know, like I'm I'm believing in you. you know? What I mean,
0: can is is it definable? Like like what did you see, or was there like a one action that you saw or something um, that just made you feel that way? I think now it's been,
1: it's been sort of just verified that Scooter has like of course, yeah. a star energy, you know? Um, and it was that.
0: That's what was being reflected.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think now when I look back at it, I'm like, that's what it was. Just like he has star power. He has magnetism. Um, he, like, I find that like, no matter how hard you try, he comes up in every conversation. Like people just want to talk about him and people want to hang with him, and people want to ask questions about him, and um, he just has that thing. But I do remember like so many conversations where he just was so focused, you know, he's like, I want to build the next DreamWorks, like read the David Geffen book, like just thinking in ways that I was not, you know, I was like just not thinking that big and that broadly at that time. And he had such commitment and focus to his vision, and you know he was never interested in being super drunk or partying very hard like he was really in control all the time and um and just had a way of making celebrities like like him and trust him and like i could never figure that out like i don't get it like why is justin timberlake interested in scooter you know what i mean like why is usher interested in scooter like cuz to me we were just a bunch of college kids you know and what he had was no different than what anybody else had. Like, it's not like he knew girls that were ten times more beautiful, or like he was supplying something. Like, he wasn't a drug dealer. Like, he didn't. There was nothing. There was nothing that he had that everybody else didn't have. But for some reason, people just were like magnetically drawn to him.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. so at the end of college, b- before you moved to New York, you were working. Um, you were basically running your own promo company. I've heard you say you were making a low six figures. You had people working for you. Like, what did that operation look like? Like, where where did you bring that to?
1: Um, we we had a couple of kids in in every grade, essentially, right? Freshman, sophomore, junior. Um, they all got some version of like a salary per night for the show plus like bonuses based on success. Um, we had our trusted door people that worked the door. We had security people. We had some social media people. Like it was a nice little operation. Eventually, um, we sold it to a really wealthy Chinese kid who had come to school at Emory. It was a very funny story because, like, it's kind of this weird, like, I don't know, very like uh, very uh, eastern despot kind of personality, like walked in, like he was like, ran a small country um, and just kind of came up to me and he was like, my name is Jackie Lai and I'm your biggest competition. And I was like, I've never heard of you and we don't have any competition. There's no other oh. parties. Like that's why we make so much money because like, we're the only assholes who do this.
0: Um, you're the worst competition ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're the worst competition ever. I've never heard of you. Um, and, but then I remember being like, but if you want to own this company, like you can buy it you know, and I was a senior and was trying to think about how I could get some money to start my life and get out of this business. Cause I knew I would never walk away <laughs> unless I could figure out how to exit it. Cause it was like paying me more money than I could get going to work for someone. And really, I only had to work a couple of days a week. So yeah, it was kind of, you know, it was this cool little operation of sort of young, hustling, college kids. Everyone who worked with me or for me is very successful now. It just kind of takes that entrepreneurial mentality. Um, We were doing clubs in New York too, doing stuff in Miami. Um, We were really trying to build a a a, a national business where the company was called Miseducated. And um, what I wanted to do at the time was essentially build a website In which every local promoter could have their own site. At the time, building websites was like expensive. So nobody had websites, right? And so if the idea was like you could have miseducated.com/slash University of Florida or whatever the name of your promotion company was, like UF and whatever, and everyone would share the same site template and they would all promote on that site so you could see what parties were happening all over the country, and you could upload photos, and we would eventually sell advertising at all the parties so we would do experiential events at all the parties with brands and we could also sell across the website and do digital advertising and use social media um to spread spread national campaigns which still to this day is a good fucking idea that nobody. i was just gonna
0: say i think that's a good idea
1: (laughs) it's still a great idea that's never been executed um and i basically raised the money to do it but not enough money to fly around and really meet with people. And I also would have needed to hire a brand partnerships person. Cause I just didn't know how to speak that language at the time. Um, but that's why I ended up going to work for cornerstone because I'd written a paper on them. And I was like, these are the guys who are really making it happen in terms of lifestyle, marketing, music, marketing, brand partnerships. Like, so if I go there, I'll learn how to do it. And, Either I'll be really happy there, or I'll go out and build the thing that I wanted to build. You know, and instead, I got sidetracked and became a music manager.
0: So okay, so after that, after you know, you you move to New York after college, start working for the fader. You move out yeah. to LA, start working for SB Projects as a senior manager, and then how do you decide what? What at what point do you decide to break off and start brand management? Um.
1: Uh, it was a number of different factors, but it was kind of just a silly one. I was like turning 30 and I was like, Oh, I'm 30. Like I should probably own my own company again. You know what I mean? Like I just felt like being an entrepreneur again and, um, just seeing how much success Scooter was having and feeling like, okay, it's time for me to do my thing. You know, it's time for me to leave the nest. You know, he gave me a leg up. He, He made a lot of important introductions in my life. He gave me the sort of MBA I needed in becoming a music manager. But, like, I I almost always looked at it as, like, a burden, like, being there. Like, I should just go out and do this on my own and build businesses with him, alongside him, and and, um, not draft off of him, you know. Which now I look back at it as, like, that's such a silly perspective, you know, and it's not at all what it was or how it should be or how you should think about it. And, but I do see it all the time with other independent managers. And it's so relevant now to what I'm doing with range in, in trying to build this ecosystem for other managers to come in and be excited about plugging into like, you're not a liability just because we have to outlay cash to hire people for you or, um, or provide all these services like, it's not a liability. We're investing in your future. We're, we're venture capitalists. Um, and we're betting that you are going to collectively make us all, including yourself, a lot of money. And we're, we're willing to invest that time and energy right now. And that's what Scooter does, too. You know, he does it for other managers. He does it for artists. Like, it was, I was never a liability. I was an investment. And, um, and I was an investment that
0: paid off really well for him. Is that because I was reading the because like there was a ton of press when range was announced? And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I was sort of curious if, if brand is does is brand management folding into range or are they still yeah. remaining separate? Is but brand is going to fold into range?
1: Well, we we have folded in, um, and essentially, uh, starting the kernel of what will be the music department at range, you know, on the film and TV side uh we're so formidable already if not the biggest we are close to and will be the biggest uh film and tv management company um in hollywood uh we have over 100 clients um many of which are the most famous people on earth um, and some of the best creators directors writers showrunners, actors um the music department is ostensibly us right now brand management and we're aggressively out there Having conversations, multiple conversations a day, about bringing in new managers, whole management companies, record companies, um, publishing companies. You know, we we really want to grow in a very intelligent way, um, and we we recognize the incredible opportunity that exists in the COVID landscape right now. You know, as a newly capitalized business, we're in a position to do things that struggling businesses just cannot do, you know?
0: Absolutely, so I'm curious as a, as a younger manager and then now owning, you know, as now, you know, you were the guy and now you have people working for you. How does your day-to-day change as manager? Like, do you make less day sheets or is there anything? I'm, I'm not asking this very well. How does your, like, early on to now, how has the role of manager changed for you?
1: Yes, I mean, significantly when, Early on as a manager, you do everything, you know, and and um, there's no job too small. I, I still approach the job like that, that there is no job too small, but fortunately I have more people to help me execute on a lot of this stuff. Um, and I try to be involved more in the high level conversations around negotiations and creative. Um, and that can be creative discussing music, music videos, uh, tour marketing, stuff like that. Um, and then high level negotiations around new contracts and deals and um, brand partnerships, uh, film and TV opportunities, stuff like that. I, I don't like to be involved in the minutia anymore. It's just not a great use of my time. Like um, right. I could do so much more for everyone involved, the day-to-day managers and the artists, if I'm just like out there you know, banging the phones and doing really what I do best. Um, And so it's been a significant change. And now even stepping in as a co-founder of range, you know, your, your responsibilities change. Like I'm a partner to, you know, all these other people that don't necessarily do what I do. Um, And creating value uh, in the partnership doesn't necessarily just equate to making hit records. It's about you know, creating culture. It's about opening doors. It's about, um, having a point of view on the direction of the company and what it means to be an entrepreneurial venture in the middle of a pandemic. Like, you know, I I am one of the few partners that was actually running and operating my own business. Um, so I think there's just so much more to my day to day now than just being a manager. Um, and i'm thinking more holistically about what our department's going to look like um not just now but six months from now 18 months from now three years from now five years from now like you know with a goal to build um what hopefully will be one of the most formidable music departments in in the business you know and i've had great mentors and people like scooter and Rob Light and Jason Owen and Scott Borchetta and, and, um, you know, David Zedek and, and uh, Randy Phillips and, you know, just like, I want to take all the things that I've sort of learned along the way and try to implement them and, and, you know, follow the things that I thought those, those people did right and, and correct some of the things I think they did wrong and, you know, really build the post pandemic company of the future, you know, which I do believe looks different.
0: Absolutely. Matt, I won't keep you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Before I let you run really quickly. It's a basic question, but I love to ask everyone like favorite book. What do you read? What do you read every day? Or do you read every day? Like, like what, what do you look at to when you're, when you're trying to get smarter?
1: I have to say I, I do read every day. I read the New York times every day. Um, I don't read a book every day. Um, I really love, I really loved. Well, I love the the operator, the Geffen book that Scooter made me read in college. I think it's so thick, book. but so worth it. <laughs> so worth it. Um, I think that's a really great one. Um, I think Branson's Losing My Virginity. I think it's called. It is such a great book. Um, I love that. I, I just read um, uh, the CAA book. I think is great. I think the Ovitz book. Um, was
0: really I was going to ask, would do you like the Ovitz one or the uh, or the 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 one not by Ovitz? Because it's interesting to see the perspectives when you I read like it. Too. I like both, Bo- both of them. Yeah,
1: yeah. I also then recommend everyone read the Bob Iger book because there's another perspective in, in there too. Um, so yeah, I mean those are some of the ones I've read more recently. I really want to go read uh, the Reed Hastings book. I'm going to try to oh, get. Yeah, into it. I haven't read it either, but everyone's talking about it. Okay, the Reed so, Hastings. So I always listen I to the Daily. Like read so as much. Have- read as much as you can, read as many of these books as you can. Um, I was a history major in college, so I believe that you know history does repeat itself, um, or at least there are patterns that we can see, and uh, I try to learn from, from others.
0: I had a history teacher in school who had a line I always loved. He was like, don't, don't learn history, it's a waste of time, it'll just repeat itself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And, uh, it was a pleasure to speak to you. Have a wonderful uh, weekend and uh, i hope back. to see you when when i'm traveling
0: again. back at you absolutely thank you so much for taking the time this was so fun really appreciate it there you have it episode 30 matt graham thanks again for tuning in thanks again to matt for taking the time out of his busy schedule to talk with us such a thrill so much fun hope we get the chance to do it again soon and again thanks everyone for listening and tuning in The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in and we will see you next time. Bye.